there. Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is Hall of Famer John Harks. Before we get going, you can sign up for a subscription to my writing site at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style stories and on-site coverage of the men's and women's game. That's grantwall.com. In segment one, Chris Whittingham is back, and he and I will break down the soccer news. We'll have my interview with John Harks in segment two, but let's bring in Witty. Welcome back, my friend. How are you doing? Doing all right, sir. Happy to, to get back to it. Now uh, let's talk some soccer. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, I'm in Kansas City right now. Uh, we got people wondering when Landon Wall and Witty was coming back. <laughs> and for a while there, it was just me. Now you're back. Got to figure out about getting Landon back on after these for these U.S. post games. But I think uh, at least a possibility that could happen down the road. But for now, it's just you and me. USA nil, Uruguay nil. Another World Cup team that the U.S. is playing this week after Morocco. Another clean sheet for the U.S. No goals in this game for either team. What are your thoughts? Well, I, I do think that the the no goals, I think, is probably the thing that we should talk about a little bit because for me, it's fairly misleading. Um, I, I don't think that these have necessarily been two performances that merit the U.S. keeping clean sheets. I thought Sean Johnson made a fairly fortunate save, um, albeit a massive one. Edinson Cavani misses an open goal right before the final whistle. And I thought the U.S. was fairly lucky to get away with this one. And I think in general, I, I, I watch games when the U.S. decides to play an opponent that is going to go toe-to-toe with them. There's a lot of space to be found for uh, for opposition teams with the way that the U.S. push fullbacks forward, with the way that they commit to the attack. I think they leave themselves fairly vulnerable. And I'll be curious, now that we know who the three opponents are, how the U.S. kind of manages each game in this group. Wales and Iran will certainly be the priorities in terms of trying to figure out how to get three points against those opponents. But I think at times the U.S. is exposed, but also I think they've been fairly goal dangerous. I don't know if they were, you know, three goals good against Morocco, nor were they probably zero goals bad against Uruguay. They probably should have gotten at least one in this game. But I I do think that the scorelines kind of don't reflect what the performances have been. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, And that said, I, I do look overall at the U.S. back line situation, and we entered these games with question marks big ones, at starting center back next to Walker Zimmerman after Miles Robinson's Achilles, and then at the eternal position at number nine, center forward, where Jesus Ferreira has started both games, Haji Wright has come on in both games, you know, nobody scored, uh, or, or I guess Haji Wright did off a penalty in the last game, but in terms of the run of play, and so let's talk about those two positions. I guess my question for you would be, Aaron Long has started twice now this week next to Zimmerman. Came off at halftime for Eric Palmer Brown, who I thought did pretty well and recovered quickly on a couple of occasions. Um, is Aaron Long the guy to start at the World Cup? I think he will, um, just because he had already pretty well established himself as one of the starting center backs before he got hurt. Now there's been another injury. He's healthy. And he's starting again. So my presumption will be that on opening day when the U.S. plays Wales, that it will be Aaron Long and Walker Zimmerman as the two starting center backs. Um, The only player that could usurp them will be Chris Richards. I do think Chris Richards probably needed to be here in order to really solidify that campaign because like you said Eric Palmer Brown has had a chance to get minutes I actually wasn't as as, as convinced as you were by his performance um, but I, I do think that those two are probably locked in and I guess it leads to an overall question for me about the back line and the way that the U.S. play because in this game you start DeAndre Edlin at right back Long and Zimmerman at center back and Sean Johnson in goal and while all of those guys at sometimes at club level, do attempt to play out from the back, I wouldn't consider it any of their strengths. Aaron Long plays mostly in a team that's pressing Red Bull, knock it forward, hit it long, forward, 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 through ball, through ball, through ball. It's not really about deliberate play out of the back. I don't think it was really the strength of any of those guys. And then you have Joe, Joe Scali at left back today, 
who's obviously a right-footed player playing at left back. There's certain limitations in playing out. And I just wonder if maybe the U.S. maintaining that identity is a real difficulty in these sorts of moments because when Uruguay pressed them well today and they could only really do so for short spells because of how hot it was, the U.S. were really under pressure and struggled to find ways out of it and were fairly lucky at times to play out of it. So I do wonder from a personnel standpoint, unless you have Serginho Dest and Anthony Robinson in at fullback, if you don't have, uh, you know, Zach Steffen playing in goal and to a lesser extent, Matt Turner... How much can the U.S. execute their identity with those guys as center backs? Because I just don't think it's their skill set. And it's why I think, you know, Greg Berhalter talks about becoming more of a pressing team. That certainly does suit their skill sets. But uh, either way, my overall concern about this back four is what happens when they're asked to play out. They had a nice moment against Morocco where they nearly went back to front and Haji Wright didn't finish the chance. But I just don't think that they have enough building out, enough technical quality amongst their back four. Up front... Jesus Ferreira continues to put himself in good scoring positions. And I feel like his individual XG is probably better than any other U.S. center forward. But he hasn't really finished much. And I guess the question is, is there a point at which that could become become a problem with Greg Berhalter? Or is Greg Berhalter, who's definitely an XG data guy, going to keep uh, preferring him? He's definitely more mobile than any other uh, U.S. center forward. It seems to me that Haji Wright's going to have to score some goals for the U.S. to put himself in a position where Burhalter might consider starting him at a World Cup because I do feel like, and maybe it's just because they're both towering players, but like Haji Wright viewed a little like PFOC the way that they play, which isn't necessarily the the game model that Burhalter would prefer to play uh, up front. And that Ferreira much more fits what is the model that the Burhalter wants to play. Well, I think this would probably be the biggest criticism I would have of Burhalter is you're trying to find a player that fits a game model rather than trying to figure out, well, who's the best striker and how do we play around that person? Now, maybe it's not worth taking away from, let's say, if you built the system around having Pulisic and Reyna on wings or Pulisic and Weah on wings and Musa McKinney and Adams in midfield, those are your star players right now and none of the U.S. strikers merit building a system around. But I, I still do think when you look at the way that strikers have not just come into the team and not scored goals, but say for Ferreira, have not really been involved in the game much. If you look at the way that PFOX struggled in qualifying, Josh Sargent struggled in qualifying, Haji Wright this afternoon against Uruguay and Kansas City was hardly involved. Like It's not just that U.S. strikers don't feature or, or, or don't score goals, that they aren't really involved that much. And I do think that that's probably why Ferreira right now is the favorite because he is the one who is most often, at the very least, involved in big moments. And while that's a fairly low bar, I do think that's probably why he's playing right now. The question, and it's becoming a growing conversation, I'll be curious what you think of it, Grant, is do you bring in another attacker who right now would look to not figure whether you know, you're just looking at a mere numbers game. If you have Musa McKinney Adams in the middle, you have Pulisic on the left, and you have Tim Weah on the right, that means that there right now would be no position for Brendan Aronson nor Gio Reyna. Do you give one of those two players the start up top as a false nine so that you get another of your best player on the field, but maybe not necessarily play the position the way that Burhalter wants to? There's an adjustment around playing around a false nine that's just flatly different than playing with a center forward. So are, are you in, the, are you in the, the growing false nine camp? I will say this. I would much prefer not to see Pulisic play as a like center forward false nine. So I'd like to keep him doing what he's doing. Tim Weah might be a guy that if it's a, a choice of, you know, like the one thing though with Weah is you can always trust him to stay wide on that side. And that is something useful, I think. And he does deliver a good cross. So that is something useful. But you could also try him. If, if, if you want to get all those guys on the field... Theoretically, Gio Reyna might be up next uh, for me uh, as someone to potentially try centrally. I, you know, I think Gio Reyna is actually someone who can, separate from other players on this team, create some space in the box and create opportunities on his own in ways that I don't think other guys can. 
it's it's a tough one. Um, you know, ideally, you'd like to have a, a number nine. Um, and I think at this point, we know enough about Greg Berhalter that I don't see him doing that. <laughs> I just don't see him yeah. doing way way as a center, you know, a center forward false nine. I don't see him doing Reina. I, I think he would go with Ferreira. I agree. For me, for me, I also think as well that Ferreira, for whatever you can criticize him for being in those moments and not scoring, I don't think you can really point to any individual moment. I think since, was it the El Salvador game at home in Minnesota when it was freezing cold that he had a couple of real guilt-edged chances and he didn't put them away? There's been chances. There's been a few where he hasn't put them. But I don't think today you could really classify either one of those. One was actually a good bit of work to create a window to strike. He just doesn't pick out the corner enough. And the other was the cross from DeAndre Yedlin, which comes on to him quickly. But that's a tough ball to control. unless you're cross. Right, unless yeah. you're Haji Wright's size. Like, to get over that ball when it's coming up at your forehead at a high rate of speed, that was a tough one to control. So, I still wouldn't necessarily say it's reached the stage of Jesus Ferreira can't score goals for the national team. He's going to... Well, he might miss a big chance at the World Cup if it comes to him, but I, I don't think that you can necessarily rule out him as a striker. I think if you ask Greg Berhalter, he's probably done the job that he would have been asked to do. And I'll be curious now that there's these two Nations League games, if maybe you try and figure out more of a sample size here. But I, I think that Ferreira is going to continue to get a go. And I honestly can't make a clear argument that he doesn't deserve it. But I also get why there's a segment of the national team fan base that's looking at him and going, there's a big chance that comes to him in the game against Wales or the game against Iran that you have to score to win a game at the World Cup? Do you trust him to score it? And I can understand right now why fans would say, I don't. No, I hear you. The other one thing I would point out about Ferreira today is there were a couple of moments in the first half, especially when Uruguay's pressure was really high, where the U.S., whether it was Sean Johnson in goal or, or a couple other players, would just kind of boot it long toward Ferreira at midfield. And pressure release, obviously. And you're kind of hoping in that situation that more often than not, he can control it, hold it up, and move forward with the team. And in most, if not all cases of that, he like made one touch and then lost it. And yep. so I don't think that's necessarily a great skill of his that honestly is a, a skill of, say, Josie Altidore. Not that I'm expecting Josie to suddenly come back in the picture until he starts playing more at club level, but it's a skill that can be useful. Yeah, and Ferreira probably wasn't going to do it on a normal day, but certainly playing against Uruguay's center backs, no chance. No chance. So you could just see the experience gap there and the and the talent gap there. Uruguay center backs were always going to handle those moments. Yeah, I, I think you're getting back to the earlier problem of when the U.S. tries to build off from the back, but they don't have the personnel to do it. Those are the moments where occasionally you need that route one option, and the U.S. don't really have that unless they're picking their big center forwards, which I, I don't think any of them have really impressed that much. So I, I think it'll be really interesting if there's another... If there's a European-based option, whether it's Sargent or DK or somebody like that who gets off to a great start to the European season, they've got a couple months to really let it go. And then you hand Greg Berhalter a huge decision because, you know, right now, I think you probably would say only Ferreira is going. Pepe has certainly earned a lot in terms of his national team performances, but that's been a long time now. I heard Sam Stasko point out it's been like 24 or 25 games since he scored a goal in a game club level or national team level. And so the early start to the European season, I think, could go a long way towards determining who gets another crack with Greg Berhalter in this system heading into the World Cup. And maybe if Ferreira struggles early in the in the group stage, then you're going to an emergency start for someone who you would not have would not have expected right now on June 5th as we record this. Let's talk a little bit about the U.S.'s first opponent at the World Cup, which we now know will be Wales, which beat Ukraine, ending their World Cup dream at the last stage, uh, one nil in that game. And I watched most of that game and, and certainly seemed that the goal came against the run of play in the first half. And it was Gareth Bale taking a free kick, deflected off of Andriy Yarmolenko. They ended up calling it an own goal. And just a crushing Way, way for Ukraine to go out because it certainly seemed like 
they found really impressive reserves of, of mental strength and just like the way they played against Scotland, the way they played today, um, really impressed me. And, and I feel, you know, congratulations to Wales. I have nothing against Wales, but I, I just, I was hoping that Ukraine would make it. Yeah, that, I mean, that would have been the no doubt story of the opening day of the World Cup would have been Ukraine against the United States on this massive global stage. The U.S. would have been the biggest villains in the world on that day. <laughs> Everyone would have been rooting for, rooting for Ukraine. I found myself, even as I saw that narrative train rolling down the tracks and getting ready to trample the United States, I even saw that as, whoa, that would be cool. Like even, even as I saw like the U.S. being on the wrong end of it, that would be amazing. I was rooting for them. I watched all 180 minutes of both games. I thought Ukraine are incredibly hard done by to not win today. Wayne Hennessy, the Wales goalkeeper, pulled off a couple of massive saves. Ukraine missed a couple of fairly straightforward chances. They were fairly unlucky to concede that goal. It really didn't have anything to do with anything. It wasn't a good free kick. It wasn't towards a target that was looming and dangerous. It was just a hit-and-hope cross-slash-shot into the penalty area from Gareth Bale that Yarmolenko, unfortunately, kind of doesn't recognize where he's at, where his marks are, and just heads the ball to try and get it clear and heads into the back of his own net. Ukraine poured everything into the comeback attempt. But now, I think if we're kind of getting into the scouting aspect, I think the U.S. is probably going to face an opponent on the opening day that's not going to be terribly interested in having the ball based off of having watched them today against Ukraine. I know that Ukraine have a lot of technical qualities and Chenko in particular in midfield was tremendous today. But I do think that the U.S. are going to go against a team that, you know, obviously they have big threats. Gareth Bale, who this might be his last ride as a professional footballer, never mind uh, as a player for Wales, um, is, is a looming threat at all times. But they're just a team that likes to be resolute, that likes to play against the ball, that just has this energy and this passion for playing for Wales that a lot of national teams don't have. And it's actually remarkable how much they've kind of outperformed their talent level to get to this point. And I would have to imagine that they will back themselves against the United States to get a result, but they're not going to go about it by trying to outplay the U.S. And that'll be another interesting test of how much the U.S. is going to commit themselves versus leave them exposed on the counter. And I'll be really curious how that game plays out. And now that you know that it's Wales, I think if the U.S. plans on getting out of this group, they're going to have to win on that opening day because you don't want to leave it until the last to beat Iran on the last day under pressure. You don't want to put anything too big on the England game because obviously England are an incredibly strong national team. So it's all attention on Wales now between here and November the 21st. The U.S., in my opinion, should beat Wales. I, I agree. I, I think... I agree. I think the U.S. is a better team. I think they can create more. I think they should. And so, yeah, I, I, I feel like the U.S. should win that game. That said, Wales can be tough to play against. And even though they don't have a ton of attacking threats, they have some. You know, I mean, Bale's Bale. Aaron Ramsey is a good player. Um, Daniel James? We'll see. Daniel James is okay. <laughs> He draws a lot of fouls. <laughs> yeah, he's incredibly fast. Like, if we're talking about there being space available, like, Daniel James could have moments where he has space. Uh, but yeah, Wales have a couple of key contributors. And then they've done... I, the, the one thing that scares me is that they've got some tournament... Now some tournament flavor about them where they did really well at Euro 2016. They got to the round of 16 of this most recently played Euros as well. Is there, you talk about a narrative. I know that it's not as strong as the Ukraine narrative by miles, but this is their first World Cup since 1958. So this will be an enormous game for them to play at the World Cup for the first time. So I think, again, if you look at it talent-wise, quality of play-wise, I think the U.S. have enough to win this game. But uh, I, I don't think that means that it'll be easy. You've now used, used guilt-edged and nows. So here's my question. Is there such a thing as guilt-edged nows? Uh, well, certainly U.S. strikers don't have guilt-edged nows at the moment. <laughs> One other thing I wanted to ask you about was a pretty strong statement that the U.S. men's national team as a team put out right before this game imploring Congress to enact gun legislation. And it's something that 
might be a little bit different than a pro sports team doing it because this team represents the United States as a country. And, uh, and I thought it was a good statement. I'm glad they did it. I'm glad Greg Berhalter talked about it. Very, you know, very first thing he talked about in his press conference. And after the, the game and the mix zone today, you know, we talked to some of the players about it, including Christian Pulisic. And, um, and he's, you know, he said that they had gotten together. They had discussed that this was important to them as a team to say, to do. And he feels like something needs to be done um, by Congress. So uh, I would say that's a, that's a good sign. Uh, I, I like that this team views that that's something that they should do. And this phrase, be the change, which they used again today and have used going back to um, after George Floyd's police murder when they had games. And they've used also this week, by the way, in talking about Qatar and human rights and how they plan to probably do something, say something uh, between now and the World Cup. Um I'm glad they're doing this. And I, I do think that we run the risk of underestimating how difficult it could be as a team that wears the United States shirt. And I understand that cities occasionally do have moments where they are in their local markets, you know, flogged for saying things or, you know, here in Florida, the governor responds every time any team makes a political statement. I saw that the Tampa Bay Rays did a, uh, uh, a, a day where them and the Yankees, instead of tweeting about their Major League Baseball game, were tweeting about stats of gun violence and things that have happened in this country. And for that, the governor of Florida has threatened to remove some of their public funding that comes from the state of Florida, which is obviously enormously petty, but I do think highlights the risk of doing it from a local level. From a national level, from a national team level, this runs the risk of unpopularity. I know that that sounds ridiculous in the face of what we're talking about. We're talking about an issue that is fairly universal in the country, increasing background checks, limiting the sale of of assault weapons. That is not as universal, but I, I also think that's fairly cut and dry from my particular vantage point. But I do think that in the face of our incredibly polarized political climate, it's very difficult to do things like this. Represent with the U.S. on your shirt, you're basically saying that we in some way speak for the country or that we don't mind alienating people within our own country. And I think that that's incredibly challenging for a group of mostly young men to take on uh, because I mean, some of them do have other interests commercially or don't necessarily want to be involved in politics, and yet here they are uh, feeling the need in such an important moment to say something. Uh, the players in the NBA Finals did something similar tonight. So I, I, I do think that the U.S. players should be applauded here for what they've done. It's not as easy as putting out a statement on Instagram. You're risking backlash. You're risking uh, fans of your country not liking what you're saying. And I don't think that that's terribly easy. So uh, all, all heads off to what the players have done here. Yeah. All I would say is the stuff that they're saying, vast majority of Americans around the country support what the U.S. men's national team is saying. So this isn't something where it's like 51-49 yeah. or anything like that. And so the issue right now is that we have too much minority rule in this country and a system that actually allows that to happen. But if you look at any poll on gun laws, gun violence, vast majorities of Americans are supporting the types of things that were in this U.S. soccer men's national team statement. So um, we move on. Uh, they're going to be in Austin, Texas for big game nations league against Grenada. Um, I sound like I'm making fun in a way I, I am a little bit actually I hope, and they play at El Salvador after that. I hope that at the very least after the Grenada game, that Greg Burhalter allows some of these guys to start their summer vacations. They're not that long as it is. 
not all these guys need to go to El Salvador. I completely agree. I think uh, a lot of the European teams, although some of them fielded some stronger squads, you've seen some weird results. I saw Belgium got hammered at the hands of the Netherlands, even though they picked a fairly strong team. But Kevin De Bruyne said before the Nations League, not really taking this that seriously, have to be honest. Uh, England lost to, to Hungary away from home. Um, there have been some, some weird results, but... Um, I, I was looking at the calendar, and preseason is kind of going to be here fairly quickly. Like, a lot of teams are going to pick this up. July 1st. Yeah, it's like July 1st to, to July 5th. It's get your few weeks in while you can. And honestly, this is a light summer in terms of international football. It just goes to show how insane the calendar is and how little time there is for rest. That Basically, it's like you get a three-week vacation, and you're done. And when you compare that to, like, the American sports where a quick offseason is two months, that's it's incredible how quick the timeline is. So I agree. I think for a lot of these guys that have played full European seasons, um, I, I don't think a game in El Salvador is as important. I think if you're looking to get some guys some more minutes, get them in that El Salvador game. If you want to ha- feel good about a performance before heading off uh, to, to the summer break, get a good performance in against Grenada, get a four or five nil win and move on. But yeah, I I think that it's about player maintenance right now from here. One other thing I want to address, Canada's men's national team on strike did not play their game against Panama on Sunday. And this is a team that was the best team in CONCACAF during the 14-game octagonal, better than the U.S., better than Mexico. They made it to the World Cup, and now there's real labor strife with a Canadian federation that suddenly looks like they kind of don't know what they're doing. Yeah, it seems like the Canadian Soccer Federation didn't realize that they're heading towards being in the big leagues now. And that's, I think, something that they probably... They weren't prepared probably for anything other than good feeling to happen around their national team. That just there's too much positive momentum to have a labor stoppage. Um, But... This is something that you normally see in countries where maybe there isn't enough money to go around, but it seems like there is, and there's a real dispute over how that money how that money is working. And I guess similar to some, there is a Canadian entity uh, that is owned by the owners of the Canadian Premier League that runs all the commercial rights for Canada Soccer Federation. And I guess there's a dispute over where the money from media rights is going, uh, where the money from marketing rights is going, whether or not the Canada national teams uh, have their full commercial value, um, which is very similar to what happened with the U.S. Soccer Federation that no longer have a relationship with Soccer United Marketing. So that's one of the things at play here. There's other things at play here. You can read about uh, there's the, 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 play, the statements from some of these players online. But uh, either way, it is really interesting to me that ahead of World Cup buildup, ahead of really big moments for Canada's men's soccer program, that it doesn't seem like they fully graduated yet. And I'll be curious how much that overall structure holds them back going to the World Cup, because you would think that they would just be going from strength to strength, given that they've qualified for the first time in a long time, and that uh, this is their chance to put themselves forward on the world stage. But the way that they put themselves forward on the world stage here is an organization in disarray. And we'll see how much more comes out about this. I think it's very likely that the new U.S. national team's collective bargaining agreements with U.S. soccer are having an influence here because the U.S. teams are the best paid national teams in the world. And Canada, their men's team, well, their women's team can say, we beat the U.S. women at the Olympics and won the gold medal. Their men's team can say, we were better than the U.S. during the octagonal. Why are they the best men's team in the world? And obviously you get into a whole revenues thing too, but it looks like the deal that the Canadians currently have is paying them not much. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and uh, statements are being released and press conferences are being done uh, to try and damage control this, but uh, it seems like they have a real contentious labor dispute. Whenever you go uh, to, to this point, which is you basically have to tell a team in Panama, hey, you flew out to Canada for nothing when we tried to organize this friendly at the very last possible moment, um, not, not good looks all around, and I imagine uh, that the next meeting... The next bargaining session between these two entities is not going to be a fairly smooth one. Not a great week for Canadian Soccer Association. They had scheduled a friendly against Iran that they had to cancel. And so last minute they get Panama and then Panama goes there and they just twiddle their thumbs because they're not playing a game. Brutal. Brutal. 
Oh my God. Oh, shoot. Uh, always an interesting world in international soccer. Chris Whittingham, thanks as always. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with John Harks. Our guest now is John Harks, the National Soccer Hall of Famer who played in two World Cups, was the first American to play in the English Premier League, and won two MLS Cup titles with DC United. He's now the head coach and sporting director of the Greenville Triumph. John, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, my pleasure, Grant. It's great to see you as well. It's been a while, so I'm glad that uh, we can find some time to reconnect. Yeah, me too. I was thinking back to our first interviews in the 90s, I think, probably. Right, when we were both, well, you were 13, I was 12. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's right, yeah. So. <laughs> so we're recording this on Friday and coming out Monday. I do want to start by getting your take on the U.S. men's national team, which Ooh. has qualified for the World Cup, beat Morocco midweek. There is a game against Uruguay on Sunday between recording and coming out but how are you feeling about the team these days feel great actually um i think just such a a, a great feeling to know that we're going back to the world cup where there was an absence and you know that's the number one thing i think sometimes uh we you know whether it be media or fans or even other coaches get caught up uh with critiquing too much instead of an uh, understanding that it is it's a big challenge uh, through the World Cup qualifying process and the rotation of players, players coming in from different countries, um, different styles of play, and you're expecting them all to come together and everything snaps your finger and it's perfect. It, it never works like that. So I'm really excited that they've qualified. Um, you know, great showing the other night against Morocco, who I thought was a good passing side, but not very good in the final third, didn't execute the opportunities that they had and they could have. So look, at the end of the day, as you support them, we keep pushing forward and let's hope that they, they go into the World Cup with positive attitudes and a lot of confidence. As someone who's been through World Cups, would you have any advice for Greg Berhalter as he manages things over the next five months to the World Cup? I mean, look, it's, I, I think everybody wants to do that Monday morning quarterbacking. You know, everybody wants to have their opinions in the game. And, um, you know, I've spoken to Greg uh, numerous times, you know, about players and personnel and style of play and things like that. I think Greg does a great job. I think the coaching staff does a good job. Any advice? Probably not. I just stay even keeled through the whole process because there's so many emotions that go up and down and the players, you know, a lot of them are young and, um, you know, you, they're looking to the manager to see how he responds in really stressful situations. So if he can keep himself even keeled throughout the process, that's more than half the battle right there. You're obviously a coach and sporting director these days. You're not calling U.S. games on television right now, though you did in the past. Did you, do you ever miss doing the U.S. games on TV? I do. Um, I've had some great experiences and learned a lot through that process, whether I be with, you know, Ian Dark, Martin Tyler, J.P. Delacamera, uh, Dave Johnson, you know, at DC United as well. And some quality guys that I've worked with and uh, it's great to see their process and the way that they approach the games and the research they do. Um, being prepared is number one, you know, and that's the number one thing. So from my perspective, it was like, how do we get to a point where these guys are, you know, not only are you loving the game, but you want to call the game, but at the same time, you also want to be able to represent the team well. And it's not about you. It's the same with coaching. It's as soon as you remove the ego, you start to discover your purpose in the right way. And so for me, it's like, I miss calling the games and it was fun and I learned a lot. Um, it's the closest sometimes that you can get to the pitch when you're not a player or a coach. And, um, but I do love coaching. I really do. I, I'm not afraid to have a side hustle doing some games here and there. I'll say that, I'll just put that out there. But I do love um, the opportunity to teach and seeing the growth in the players, the way that they respond um, you know, to different adversity as well, the way they get challenged and uh, the way they come together and collaborate as a team is the best feeling in the world for a coach. So I, I love that side of the game. I really do. You're in your fourth season as the Greenville coach and, and sporting director. You've been to the league final three times, won it once. What's it been like there? How do you describe the experience? Um, it's been a tremendous experience, actually. A lot of, uh, a lot of growth. 
You know, you get thrown into being a manager and uh, you take on the responsibility as a sporting director as well. Um, so, you know, from I'll explain a little bit as the way we approach that when you're building a club from scratch, um, the coaching part and, and, you know, the relationships I've built and the trust with with different players and coaches and leagues. And I'm a soccer junkie, so I watch all soccer and discovery of players coming out of college that don't make the MLS draft. That's what happens, you know, for the Division Three, you know, for the USL League One. And but taking pride and taking on a challenge and building something from scratch is excellent. It really does. And it teaches you a lot about yourself and the way that you handle that through the process. So sporting director, you know, what does year one look like? What does year two, year three look like? What does year four look like? Where do we need to be with our brand? Where do we need to be in terms of building a stadium? Where do we need to be in terms of representing the local community? And doing it the right way with partnerships. And, and uh, so from that perspective, it's been fun to learn both. And I love it. It's been a lot of success early. We've done a lot in a short period of time. I have a tremendous staff that's with me. You're only as good as the people around you. Um, and we want to push for more. We want to win as many titles as we can. But we also want to coexist with development and pushing players up to the top levels. Um, and through that process, you know, you start to, you know, really enjoy it. The connection to the players is fantastic. Being able to manage the front office and manage up with the president and the league, our, our club owner has been great. Good relationships there. And um, yeah, I've enjoyed it. It's been, a, it's been a good journey so far. I'm not sure where it's going to take me, but it's been a great journey. Yeah, I mean, I guess that was a question because you built this from scratch. And so I don't want to just assume that there's some something else you want to go and do, but do you have any interest in potentially coaching an MLS at some point? Of course, yeah. I mean, I think you're to not be ambitious and not to want to challenge yourself is you know what's the what's the purpose of living? Um, you got to be able to take risks and you got to be able to put yourself in the framework to say, can I get challenged right here? And yeah, I feel like I'm up for that. To be honest with you, uh, this has been you know a great learning. Uh, curve for me and a good platform to kind of find my way as a coach. Um, you know, and, and you bring the leadership, you know, part of it, the teaching part of it, the aspect, uh, the, the authentic kind of everyday caring atmosphere for the players, and then they feel safe and they give you the best. So, you know, that emotional kind of, I guess, investment in the guys and, and in the club itself has been great. And, uh, but look, I mean, if there's an opportunity that I can go to MLS or, or even if we can get our club to the championship level and coach at that next level, it'd be fantastic too. And, you know, in those stepping stone processes along the way, I'm not opposed to going overseas and coaching. Uh, you see a lot of great coaches like Jesse Marsh doing well, taking risks at different clubs and, and different leagues around the world. I'm really proud of him and the work that he did at Leeds to go in there under a lot of stressful situations there and expectations and he's done well. So the more that, you know, the American coaches are having success overseas in those leagues as well. It creates an opportunity for us to be looked at, I think. So why not take a challenge if you get one? What should we know about John Harks, the coach that maybe we didn't know uh, about since we focused on John Harks, the player over the years? Yeah, I mean, I think it's understanding your core values, you know, for the team, setting out a plan. You know, what's that structure look like on an everyday basis? Um, develop a philosophy in the game. Uh, for for your your coaching style, um, I I play with possession, the build out of the back with a purpose. Our teams do have um, the ability to switch style of play during the game because we train that way as well. So whether we come out in a four four two or four three three or even playing three in the back with a three four three, we train on it. So it's amount about. To me, it's about doing the work. Communication is key. Being able to be upfront and communicating exactly what the plan is for the guys, but then leaving enough creativity and room for them to just show you who they are, like to go out and enjoy themselves and take some risks as well. So you got to find that balance as a coach and still win the game, <laughs> which is which is hard. Um, but I, I love that. I love that the challenges that you face during that process. It, it's great. It's great to, you're, because you never fail. Because if you're trying things, you're not failing. If you're not trying, then you're failing in life. And so I always tell the guys like, hey, look, we put ourselves out there um, and maybe the result didn't work for us, but what did we learn about ourselves? And let's find solutions here to go forward. 
And that's the number one thing. As long as the guys are okay, you know, you don't harp or you don't, you, you learn and you reflect on what you didn't do well, but let's see if we can kind of move forward. What are the new objectives in our team now? So that that's kind of me in a, in a nutshell. Nice. Um, I know your children, Ian and Lauren, are both in soccer as well, as our listeners may know too. For those who don't know, could you explain what they're doing? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, Cindy and I are very fortunate and we're very proud of our kids. And, um, you know, we raise them with tough love. And uh, we, we also know as parents that they're just passing through you. It's not like you're, you're not raising them to be like you. You want them to be able to make decisions on their own and be independent. So Ian's been over in Scotland at Dundee United uh, for three years now. Um, you know, he is currently out of contract and they want to re-sign him. He's getting some interest from other, other clubs in England as well. Um, a couple in Belgium and one in Germany. Um, so he's getting some options, which are great. And he's, he's in a tough place right now where he's got to make some decisions. Uh, Dundee United has been fantastic for him. It's been a great club. Um, and through that journey, I've watched him grow as a player. He's become more aggressive and more assertive. He's definitely going forward a lot more. And he became player of the year for their club this year, which was great, great achievement for him. And um, just seeing that he's showing up against Celtic and Rangers, the big clubs and scoring goals and, Scoring goals in the Derby and everything shows like how much he's enjoying it and the growth, but he's put a lot of work in there. Uh, Lauren, our middle child, uh, is playing in Denmark as a pro as well with Alborg. Um, it's her first year as a pro. She's learned a lot and she's enjoyed that as well. The culture there has been fantastic for her and uh, the process of being in a, a kind of new environment, a new club, you know, on the women's side and growing that from scratch and, and making it more professional has been interesting too. So she's taken on a leadership role as a foreign player. And um, it's been good for her. Her last game is actually to, on uh, on Saturday. You know, this Saturday, when, when this podcast comes out, it'll be the past Saturday. So wishing her all the best and not sure where she's going to take that. She's been offered to stay there, but she's actually getting some offers too in Scotland, which is interesting because not only is Ian there, but Ian's wife, uh, uh, Sarah, uh, plays for Celtic women as a pro. And so, you know, it could be all reunited there in Scotland. We'll see. And then Lily is our youngest who uh, it just graduated Elon University uh, in Burlington, North Carolina uh, last week and a political science major. She has two minors and uh, she's been accepted to Oxford next year. Wow. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty she's uh, academically off the charts and really smart kid. And we're just proud of her. And she played soccer all four years at Elon and enjoyed that and had a great balance there. But. Um, and I think she still wants to play soccer at Oxford and, uh, if she gets a club team over there, but all three of our kids might be in Europe, you know, within uh, three, four months. And so Cindy and I are like, what are we doing? <laughs> what, what's happening? But, you know, again, like we wish them all the best. We're very proud of them and, you know, there's still going to be a lot of challenges ahead of them. So as they grow, um, as individuals, we're just here to support them and guide them when we can. Well, congrats to you and your family on all of that. And, and my apologies to Lily for not including her in my original question. So uh, good to get oh, an no. update. Oh, um, no. she's good. She's good. She's the blonde one. You know, they're, they're, she's the third child. You know, she's got that third child approach to life. You know, she's good. She's good. I want to pull back a little bit because mm. one thing that's fascinating to me these days is that so many new U.S. national team fans have been created over the past 10 years that a lot of them weren't following when you were doing big things starting in the 1990s in your career. And you and, and your contemporaries obviously created a lot of new fans yourselves in the 90s. But do you run into that at all where you meet soccer fans here who aren't really aware of what you achieved in your career? Yeah, I think I think you do. Um, you know, and I, but I think that's also, you know, part of, you know, the challenge in the game. I mean, you've covered the game for a long time, Grant, you know, at the highest level. and But you've also gone into the lower levels of the history of the game. And I think it's important that people continue to take accountability at all levels in the game of growing the game. You know, it's a big responsibility and that's a fan base too. And, you know, I could, you know, now you're starting to see, you know, the market now, the way the game is getting exposed is tremendous. Like, you know, we, we all talk about, wow, the game's so small. Well, it is small. People are connected everywhere to the game. And a lot of it is like technology today. You can watch a game on your phone. You can watch a game on, 
you know, Apple Plus, ESPN Plus, Paramount, whatever it may be. It doesn't matter. It's everywhere. Um, and so now it's at a point where you're making these choices, what you're going to watch on the day when you've got maybe 14 games to watch in one day. So I think it's brilliant. It, it grows the game. And as you know, it goes up and then it comes back down and then it goes back up again. So it, it's cyclic, cyclical. And um, for the individuals, though, to take on the responsibility to grow the game in the right way, that means respect the game. Respect your national teams. Respect your club teams that are local for you. Go and support them. Don't say you, you support Sheffield Wednesday or West Ham or anything overseas or, you know, I mean, Liverpool and that before you support your local community team. You should support them there. And I think that's something that's starting to change here and take off, especially with USL. Uh, USL with the three divisions right now is really growing faster than anything. And to have a foundation there, um, you know, a strong foundation of growth is fantastic. So the more people get involved with that, the better it's going to be. You're from Kearney, New Jersey. There's a really good documentary film that my friend Tom McCabe was part of about Kearney called Soccer Town <laughs> USA that people should see if you haven't. How would you describe growing up in Kearney and that sort of soccer hotbed community there? Wow. I think it was um, ooh, uh, probably a consistently challenging experience. Um, I think you were always being tested in Kearney. Um, if you were a soccer player at the age of four, you were being tested by the kids that were six and seven and eight. Uh, it was always who came before you, you know, and the history of the game was certainly important to them uh, back in the day. And, you know, whether they were hosting teams from Scotland or Hungary, you know, the international inclusion that, that's there and the, you know, the social clubs that are there, you were raised as if you were in Europe, you know, to be honest with you. Um, and I love that. I love that. So it was more of a world kind of cerebral view of football and also of life. It made you hungry to, to think what's it like, not just in Kearney. Like we thought soccer was played like with passion as it is in Kearney and Tom McCabe captured that beautifully, as you mentioned. Um, we thought it was like that everywhere. And then as we traveled, as we got older, 12, 13, 14, and then tryouts with the state team and regional team and national teams eventually, thank God. And um, we were fortunate enough to stay alive and survive <laughs> tough areas, tough places to live, you know, hardworking, blue collar. Uh, but lucky enough that our parents gave us the love of the game, the freedom to discover who we were and live off the streets at times and play soccer all day long and pick up games and, and, and kind of find our way. I, I thought it was amazing. You know, you really reflect back on that time and you're just like, wow, we're fortunate because it was a tough area. You had to survive. It was, um, you know, there was also, we'd be you know remiss if we didn't mention the drugs and alcohol that was there. And then the gangs and the violence at times too, you know, it was so close to Newark and, and Harrison and, you know, but I think it raised you tough. Um, but it also raised you to be grateful for what you had. You didn't need much. You know what I mean? You don't need a lot. So I think I still carry that with me. I don't need a lot. I, let's just keep going, you know? So it, it's really, I'm very fortunate. And I was very fortunate to have so many great older players around me, you know, including my brother, Jimmy, and, and, and so many other great players before me that we could actually study and say, Hey, maybe we could be like them one day. You know, it helped having New York Cosmos 20 minutes away where we could be a ball boy at times and uh, where you can aspire to play there and, and, and say, and until they folded in 84, that was like devastating. It was my junior year of high school. I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do now? So it was just great to grow up in that hotbed of soccer, you know, in New Jersey. It really was. You were the first American, as I mentioned in the introduction, to play in the Premier League when you joined Sheffield Wednesday. It's so easy to watch the Premier League in the U.S. now. It wasn't back then. What was your experience in the Premier League like in those days? In what ways was it similar to today? And in what ways was it different? Um, it was a tremendous experience. I and mean, what an opportunity, you know, to get over there and, you know, to go on trial. I, I think the crazy thing was that um, I, I aspired to be a pro as we were qualifying for the 90 World Cup. And, you know, we didn't really have a top level league at that time. Uh, we talk about the, you know, A League back in the day, and the USL leagues. And, you know, I played for the Albany Capitals a few games here and there. Um, and, and flying up on a Thursday to train on a Friday and play a game on a Saturday and then back down to Tampa or 
Miami to train with the national team for two week camp. We were doing what we could to push ourselves. It was, we didn't need anybody to challenge us at all. That's what I think made that generation of players really hungry, really hungry was to, we wanted to be respected, but we also wanted to get back to that world stage. And so qualifying for the 90 world cup, playing in the world cup was fantastic, but going to Sheffield Wednesday on a trial basis and explaining to them that I already played in the world cup. They were looking at me before I was a pro and they were looking at me like he's crazy. Um, but it was a great experience. Um, you know, breaking down, I guess, the stereotypical barriers of an American trying to make it in the English leagues when there was only three foreigners per team at that time in the old division one before it became the premier league in 92, uh, was interesting. And Sheffield Wednesday at a time where Ron Atkinson was a big manager. He was already at Manchester United. Uh, he came to Wednesday. They got relegated two years prior. And then when I came to them, they were in the old division two looking to get promoted back up okay. and to go through that experience in seven months to score goal of the year in England, to get to Wembley and win against Manchester United in a league cup final. If you told me that I would say that's the worst uh, Hollywood film I've ever <laughs> seen. Not going to happen. Keep dreaming son, but it did happen. And so I was very fortunate. I had great players, great coaches, a lot of support from my family. Um, and from Cindy at the time, because I remember calling her where I was upset. I was over there for a long period of time. They offered me a very low deal, very low deal. And, and I was upset and on the phone and she was like, stick it out. You can make it, you got to keep going. And I did. And so I was very fortunate to have those people support me during that process. And I loved it. And the Premier League now it's blown out of proportion, you know, <laughs> grand, you know, this, I mean, the game has grown tremendously. The players are strong. They're fast. Has it changed in terms of mentality and like intelligence level? Probably not. But everything's just done a little bit quicker, a little yeah. bit, you know. Um, and I think that part of it is there's more resources there to help the players recover. There's better scientific approach to the game in terms of recovery and looking after themselves more. Um, and and I love it. I love watching the games. It's fantastic to li relive and go back to the old clubs and West Ham and the Derby counties and all of that. That time period was was brilliant. So you had to you had to count as a foreign player. I, I know you have sort of like Scottish roots, right? You didn't you weren't able to get a passport and count as a domestic. Well, I, so it's funny. I was just telling that story today to uh, one of the new players we have here on trial that I had signed as a foreign player. Yet when they found out all my Scottish background and everything, then we went through the process and I got my UK passport probably about five months later. And then they changed, you know, my, um, uh, I guess what I was at that point, my status, you know, to the international side. So I became like a UK player there at that time. So I had dual citizenship. So you got the hard part done as being like the foreign player on the, on the team with very few foreign slots at first. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah it's a challenge for sure. <laughs> if I had told you back then in the early nineties that soccer in the United States would be where it is today in 2022 and sort of described to you nineties, John Harks, what, where we are now, would you have been, what, gratified, disappointed, something else? Motivated to continue to, to, I would have been inspired because you want to, that, that was the goal is to grow the game. We want to grow the game. We want respect for our country. We want respect for our leagues, you know, being part of, you know, Kobe Jones, Lexi Lalas, Eric Ronaldo, Balboa, all of those guys, Paul, you know, Paul Caligiuri, Christopher Sullivan, the list goes on and on and on to be part of, that beginning stages of building your own league in 1996 is a big responsibility. So to see it come, God, to fruition now where it is, is just, I mean, it's incredible. I watch games now and I'm just like, wow. You know, you look at a stadium like Austin and you're like, wow, what the heck is going on here? And even my experience that I had at FC Cincinnati for the first year in, in the USL, and we grew that fan base up, I mean, I remember one of our games was on a midweek rainy night and we had about 17 and a half thousand people there. And I turned to my staff at FC Cincinnati and where are we? What is going on here? And it was amazing to see that growth and that passion and that love from the fan base. Um, and we had such a great year there. It was brilliant to finish third in the league. And, 
And, and so those things, the way you expand the game and the business side of it now, you know it's mainstream. Can you get the right ownership in there? You need money to grow. And so now you've got some of the NFL ownership groups and other people of outside interest coming in and saying, wow, I really want an MLS team. Or, hey, I want a USL championship team or a USL League One team in my community. And when you do that, now you go again. Here, let's see where we are in another 10 years, which you already know, and you've documented very well. The history of the game is growing tremendously. Let's continue to keep that going at a fast rate. And I, I'm continuing to be surprised. I never even thought it was inevitable that soccer would get to where we are now. And so I've stopped mm. making predictions about where soccer will get in America. And I'm just curious to see where the <laughs> yeah. ride takes us because I don't know. How does that answer. feel from your end? I mean, as a, as a, you know, somebody that's been, you know, at the highest level in the media and been able to kind of tell the stories the right way, whether it be from coaches, clubs, towns, players, how has it been for you to see the growth? It's been amazing. I just, it's funny to me because I only went full-time soccer in 2009. I started in 96 and I did college basketball and then I did soccer but after a few years it's not that I dislike basketball I just was like I want to be a full-time soccer writer I like what's happening I like telling the stories I like the sport but I didn't choose to go full-time soccer because I thought it would get to a certain level in the United States I I, I just liked it <laughs> you know I like the people and so it's been a nice thing just personally to see soccer grow maybe to in the u.s beyond where i thought it would be now and so I, I i just feel like there's maybe not even a ceiling at this point and that's exciting and being yeah, able no. to continue telling that story is, has been a blast so um yeah it's 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 pretty cool actually when you compare where we are now to to the 90s yeah yeah um yeah I always die with Martin Short, that one line is, welcome to the 90s. You know, it's, yeah, I'm always going back to the 90s and the old school stuff. And I'm like, wow, I'm really old when I talk, coach some of these younger players. I'm like, never mind, never mind. You know? so, but it's great to see, it's great to see even some of our guys here, the younger players are still researching and looking at the old school, you know, mm -hmm. game and stuff like that. So it's nice. And, uh, like you said, it's the growth has been tremendous and, and you just want to keep that going. And the best thing you can do is to have, as you grow and get bigger, that's where you get more humility and just let it grow and just say like, it's not about us. Just keep on growing it. Let's go. Let's go do our job. No, definitely. Just uh, what to finish up here, I guess. You came from this hotbed town, Kearney, New Jersey, that produced several national team players like Tab Ramos and um, why am I blanking? Oh no. Tony Miola. Tony Miola was, <laughs> uh, yeah, Tony's going to kill me now. Um, yeah. But like, it was a definite hotbed. And, and I'm wondering, how do we manage the size of this country, the United States, when it comes to finding and developing soccer talent? Because I've had a couple instances in my career. I went to Iceland a few years ago and they were really good. And they actually talked about sort of the virtues of smallness that it mm -hmm. allowed everyone to sort of be connected in a way that was tougher in a bigger country. And so when it comes to the United States and the sheer size of it, how do you deal with that? Yeah, it's difficult to manage, right? The size of something, the bigger it is, the harder it is to manage because you want to make sure that the communication, everybody's getting the same kind of understanding of how we grow the game. And you know, I try to explain to, you know, I was doing a podcast with Kevin Campbell from Arsenal the other day, and I was explaining to him like, well, Kevin, just take this, for instance, in Colorado at the U11 age group, they, they might be doing eight aside, whereas in New Jersey, they're doing 11 aside. And so he's like, really? Who, who doesn't govern that? And I'm like, well, again, you need leadership across a bigger country. It's such a vast country. It's hard to manage every little state department of what they're doing in youth soccer. So that's where I think the tricky part is, Grant, um, I think getting momentum behind the game when you have the size of a country we have is better. That's an advantage because then you can grow it. But going back to Iceland and your comment there, when you're in a, a, a smaller country that you can fit maybe inside of Alabama, it, it becomes much more manageable. And, and the communication is clear. 
we are going to do it this way. And everybody's on the same page. So now you align with that. It's just like certain managers overseas, they take on big clubs, you know, um, Gasparini takes on Atalanta. Well, he aligned himself with Bergamo, with the city, the community. How can I manage like the tough and the grittiness of this and what they went through in COVID, all the suffering in COVID. And now how can he come out and be like, we're interchanging, we're overlapping, we're creative when we go forward, but everybody works together as a team. And that represents that community well. So those are the type of things you got to have in, in terms of the behavior of your club. And I think that if you put it all together like that, eventually it's all going to kind of come together if you can. And that collaboration takes place. John Harks is a National Soccer Hall of Famer who is now the head coach and sporting director of the Greenville Triumph. John, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure, Grant. Great to connect with you again. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank John Harks as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.